We are continuing in Matthew chapter 23. I said this morning in Creighton that I'd face mockery this week because I'm preaching more than one verse, but I won't say that this here. This is it. Matthew chapter 23 is an interesting chapter. It's it's a stern chapter. It's got muscle behind it, as it were. Jesus pronounces judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees for their their sinful behavior, for their attitudes, for their unbelief, and how those things are manifested. Beginning at verse 16, we read, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Give us hearts that believe. Help us to not be afraid of Jesus' judgment against these men but to see your graciousness, to see your holiness, and to understand your kindness to us. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this passage obviously has to do with oaths and vows, taking oaths and vows, and the way that the Pharisees and the scribes manipulated the truth and manipulated other people. So I want to begin with just laying a foundation for oaths and vows in Scripture. Uh, some definitions. An oath is a formal promise that binds an individual to do what they have promised with a penalty for failure. A vow was a voluntary, conditional promise made to God to be fulfilled only when and if God answered the petitioner's request. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, who is barren, goes to the sanctuary and prays there, Uh, the high priest was a man named Eli, and she prays for a son, and she vows that if God would give her a son, she would give that son back to him for a lifetime of service. So the difference between an oath and a vow. So here's what scripture says about those things. First of all, very quickly, oaths and vows are mostly voluntary. Vows are always voluntary. Nobody can be forced to make a vow. And the vast majority of oaths in Scripture were voluntary. There are a couple of instances where oaths are required by God. But otherwise, they're, they're voluntary things that people do. Second, oaths and vows had to be fulfilled. Uh, having voluntarily sworn an, uh, sworn an oath or made a vow, that person had to do what they had promised. Uh, I've, I'm reminded of, of what I, I've heard airline pilots say 
and uh, Robert can confirm whether this is true or not. Every takeoff is optional, but every landing is mandatory. <laughs> you don't have to take off, but once you take off, you're coming back down. Every landing is mandatory. Uh, no one has to swear an oath or take a vow. But if they do, they have to keep their word. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And in that verse, if a man swears a vow or swears an oath, if he swears an oath to bind himself, he shall not violate his word but he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Nobody made you do this, but having done it, you're bound. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe. So Solomon defines a fool as somebody who's just late in paying a vow by the time that they said they would. He says, then it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Third, God takes our oaths very personally. You shall not, you shall not swear falsely by my name, he says, Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. And I saw a couple of different commentators connect this to the... Uh, to the, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And they connected that up to oath-making and vow-making. So to summarize then what, what Scripture says, oaths and vows are voluntary. If we make them, we must fulfill them because God takes them personally. God is personally offended if we break our word, and he is glorified when we keep our word. So what then was the issue with the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, Jesus has described it, and he, he kind of paints the issue by calling them blind. He calls them blind three times in four verses. Woe to you blind guides, he says. Verse 17, you fools and blind men. And verse 19, you blind men. So how were they blind? Well, let me give you some things here. They blindly reversed everything. They blindly flipped everything upside down. They said that swearing by the sanctuary meant nothing. And swearing by the altar meant nothing. But swearing by the gold of the sanctuary, that meant something. And swearing by the offerings on the altar, that meant something. So I just want you to think about the sanctuary, and then we'll think about the altar. From the time that Yahweh delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt until Jesus' death and resurrection... Certainly from the time Moses dedicated, consecrated the tabernacle, which was in within a month or two of them leaving Egypt, God met with his people in one place, the Holy of Holies. Even, even Moses at that point no longer went up on Mount Sinai. He went into the Holy of Holies to hear the Lord. When Solomon built the first temple, that tent, the tabernacle, was built as a permanent building. And until, again, until Jesus died and rose from the dead, until the Holy Spirit came, there was only one place on earth where a human being could get close to God. And that was the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the sanctuary 
in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's the only place. Regarding the altar, in order for a worshiper to be received by Yahweh, they had to come to him with sacrifices. There's sin offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, wave offerings. There's a, there's a whole panoply of, of, uh, of offerings and how they were constructed and the order and the combinations of all of them. It was very complicated. But there was only one place you could offer those offerings, and that was on the great altar. <coughs> the great altar stood outside the tabernacle at first, and then it stood outside the sanctuary in the temple in Jerusalem, in Israel. And that was the only place. And the scribes and the Pharisees, by the way, knew that. If on this particular day, as Jesus is speaking these words, if they had discovered Dakota, just a quarter mile away on the Mount of Olives, just a quarter mile away, not around the earth, just a quarter mile away, sacrificing a bull, they would have stoned him to death. Why? Because you're not offering on the altar of God, you're offering in a high place. And even if you call your God, God, it's not God. So the sanctuary is the one place on earth where God meets with his people. And the altar, the great altar, is the one place on earth where the sins of his people could be covered so that they could worship him. And these men said the sanctuary is nothing. It's just an empty shell of a building. It's meaningless. The altar is nothing. The altar is just a pile of stone. It was a big pile now. It was 30 feet square and 15 feet tall. It was so big that there were smaller altars on top that they used. But it's just a pile of stone. It's the gold that we have put in the sanctuary that makes the sanctuary meaningful. It's the offerings we bring that make the altar meaningful. So they blindly reverse these things. They were blind to truth and integrity. God delights in, the tru in truth in the innermost being, David says in Psalm 51. These men were deceivers to the very core. If they wanted to escape responsibility, if they wanted to evade having to be accountable, they would just swear by the sanctuary. They would just swear by the altar. You remember when your kid's crossing your fingers, put, putting your hand behind your back? Don't listen to this, kids. You make a promise, oh, but you got your fingers crossed. So, so the promise is not binding. That is literally what these men are doing. They're doing it in a much more religious way. It sounds much holier and much more impressive. But they're simply saying when somebody comes to them and says, now, you made this oath, you vowed this, they're simply saying, oh, I had my fingers crossed. God hates that. And he knows the difference. Third, they were blind to mercy. They played word games with oaths and vows. I would imagine that they, when, again, when they wanted to escape responsibility themselves, they would swear by the sanctuary or by the altar. And somebody would come and say, you didn't pay your vow. And they would say, oh, but I, I swore by the sanctuary. The sanctuary is nothing. I'm not accountable. The altar is nothing. I'm not accountable. But if they wanted you to make sure that you fulfilled your vow, they would make you swear by the gold of the sanctuary or by the offerings on the altar. And if you couldn't pay, are they going to show you mercy? No. They're going to hold you accountable. They're going to use that against you every which way. 
Perhaps someone had foolishly sworn and were unable to fulfill it, but they wouldn't receive any mercy or kindness from these men. Ultimately, these men were blind to the severity of their sin and the judgment they faced for it. That's the true blindness here. Leviticus 5, it says, If a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever a man may speak thoughtlessly with a sworn oath. So you got that. It's repeated twice in two lines. If a person swears thoughtlessly in whatever a man may speak thoughtlessly, this is something that just slipped out. This is not a deliberate thing. And it is hidden from him. And then he comes to know it. He will be guilty in these. If you swear thoughtlessly, if you speak thoughtlessly with an oath, you're guilty for not fulfilling it. That's how God views those things. So it shall be, it says, when he becomes guilty in one of these, he shall confess that in which he sinned. It's a sin to just let it slip out and to accidentally take an oath. How much more to deliberately take an oath in an attempt to evade accountability or to deceive someone else? Jesus says, just in case you think that's Old Testament, not New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 12, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. At this point, Jesus had better have died for every sin because we're all in trouble. If we're held sinfully accountable for accidental oaths, God help us. Jesus died for those sins. We bring those to him. These men face the judgment of God for their dishonest, manipulative words. And yet they were completely oblivious to that judgment. How could they be held accountable, they say? The sanctuary is nothing. The altar is nothing. I had my fingers crossed. You can't hold me responsible. But God does hold them responsible. I think that they really thought that they were protected by these foolish loopholes. That God was somehow bound by their tradition. Their loopholes, by the way, didn't come from scripture. They came by their own traditions. It came from the rabbinical arguments and debates where they tried to go back and forth. I think they really thought Yahweh was powerless to judge them because they'd found a technicality. And that on the day of judgment, perhaps, he would wring his hands and shrug and say, I thought I had you. So they were blind. They were blind to the glory of God. They were blind to mercy. They were blind to the holiness of the sanctuary and the altar. They were blind to the judgment they faced. The truth is they do this because they upend everything. They reverse everything. They even reversed God. They reversed Jesus himself. They upended Christ himself. God the Father sent God the Son to take on human sin and human flesh, not, not become a sinner, to be, but to become sin on the cross and give his life as a ransom for sinners. So what did they do with Jesus? Jesus was holy and innocent. They accused him of being a lawbreaker. Jesus was God and and is God in human flesh. They accused him of working miracles by satanic power. Jesus is the very Sabbath of God. Jesus gives rest to all who come to him, and they accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and they accused him of being a sinner. They exalted themselves and they debased the Lord Jesus and expected everyone else to do the same. This is the blasphemous philosophy that undergirds modern times and modern culture. God is sovereign, the Bible says, but people say he's limited. God is holy, but people today say God is only love. God is almighty, the Bible says. People say God's powerless to prevent sin. He's powerless to prevent evil. He's powerless to save sinners unless they want to be saved. God is autonomous over all things, the Bible says. But people say that mankind is in charge. God destroyed hundreds of millions of people during Noah's time, sparing only Noah and his family. And there are people today who would say, well, what's God going to do? Kill us all? Yes, he's done that. God spared Noah and his family, and then he gave them the sign of the rainbow as a promise. And the wicked of our world have turned it into a banner for perversion. So just like the Pharisees said, the sanctuary is nothing. It's the gold that means something. These people say the justice of God is nothing. God is love. It's all a lie, which is why the Pharisees And the Sadducees were blind guides leading blind men. Jesus says in Matthew 15, if blind guides lead blind men, they both fall into a pit. And in fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus says to his disciples, so leave them alone. Let them go. Let them fall. That doesn't sound very kind. Shouldn't we warn those who are blind? Well, yeah, of course we should. That's what evangelism is. That's what preaching the gospel is. It's warning the blind. It's praying for them. It's telling them about their blindness and about the offer of salvation in Christ. We should do what Felix did or what Paul did with Felix and Drusilla in Acts. I think it's Acts 26. And talk to them about about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. We should warn them. But we need to understand this. Spiritual blindness is never accidental spiritual blindness is always willful it is always willful it always comes from a heart that's dead in sin and refuses to listen to anything else the spiritual blind are not innocent victims their own conscience condemns them and we see it around us that's why there's so much alcohol and drug use in our time is their conscience is destroying them And the only way to shut it up, the only way to calm it down, the only way to pacify it is is to sedate it or to sear it. They sear their their consciences, they scar their consciences by, by just repeating their sins until it doesn't hurt anymore. I was watching a a cooking video the other day and a a guy is, is taking things out of a deep fryer and then taking them with his hands and plating them. And he said, by the way, don't do this. I've got chef hands. And what he meant by that is he has seared his fingertips to the point where he doesn't feel that pain anymore. And people do that to their souls. 
but that's a willful act. Beyond their conscience, their sin is condemned by God's word, but they dismiss God's word. They mock it. They argue against it. They try to defend themselves against it. I want you to think about this. The gospel offers us nothing but blessing, goodness, mercy, and forgiveness and eternal life in exchange for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But they loved their sin more than anything else. And we were exactly the same. We were children of wrath under the judgment of God. We were mocking. We were dismissive. We were proud until the spirit of God entered in and softened our hearts and opened our eyes. Jesus said the light has come into the world and they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The darkness allowed them to pretend that their deeds were okay. Something like, gosh, 12 years ago now, I, I did a lengthy motorcycle trip, did the first half of it by myself. <laughs> Linda flew into Boston. I picked her up there, but I started out by going way south. I went to Dallas and San Antonio and then across to New Orleans, and I had Linda on the phone. It was lunchtime. Thereabout, I had her on the phone because I didn't have GPS on my phone. Didn't have a way to mount it on the motorcycle, I should say. So I just told her where I was, and I said, I'm going this way. I'm at this intersection. She was following me on a map and telling me. And I just said, I'm done. Just get me out of here. Just get me to the interstate so I can get out of here. And I was talking to her, sitting at a light, and I looked up, and it's, it's Bourbon Street. And I love music. I love jazz. And I said, oh, it's Bourbon Street. I'm, I'm turning. So I turned down Bourbon Street. It's noon. It was so sad. It's, it's just filthy, dirty. There's litter everywhere. All the pictures you see of Bourbon Street are taken at night. When it's just the lights and the neon. When you see it in the daytime, it's, it's wretched. That's sinners. That was us before the Lord opened our eyes. So what about us with this? As I pointed out each time, Jesus doesn't give us the, the godly alternative in this chapter, but scripture does. So let, let's talk about that. The first thing we need to do as those who are formally blind is continue to embrace the light that we've been given. We live in a world that's full of darkness. And sometimes that darkness has an attractiveness to it because we get tired of our own guilt. We get tired of our own weakness and shame. And we think, if I, could, if I could just shut my eyes, if I could just dim the lights, it won't seem as bad as it is. But we need to embrace the light. The gospel promises forgiveness. We need to embrace that. Our sins have been washed away. Not will be. Have been. By grace, you have been saved. We need to embrace that. The gospel promises justification. We were dressed in filthy rags, but through Christ we become dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that happens all of a sudden when, we, when, when the Lord brings us to faith. He declares us to be fully and finally righteous in Christ. It's, it's as though God hits pause on the world and picks us up at that moment and takes us into the future at the day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, standing before the throne, declares us to be righteous 
as his son is righteous. And then he takes us back to that moment we trusted him and hits play again. And we've already been justified. We have already been declared righteous as though we've already, we've already gone through eternal judgment. Embrace that. The gospel promises sanctification. Forgiveness happens in an instant. Justification happens in an instant. Sanctification happens in billions of instants. It's a process that begins the moment we believe, and it, it continues our, throughout our, our entire life in Christ. It doesn't stop. Every sermon I prepare, I prepare first for my, my own heart. Every sermon I preach, I preach, I preach first to my own heart. It, it, it either reveals the faith that God has given me or it reveals my own weakness that I have to confess and continue to walk with him. So we need to embrace this whole process of sanctification. And that's where many Christians trip. We don't trip over forgiveness. We don't trip over justification. We trip over sanctification. This is hard. I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to, to be glorified. But we're not. As long as we're breathing, we're continuing to be sanctified. The Spirit of God is doing that labor to transfer, transfer us from what we were at natural birth into what Jesus was during his life and the holiness and the righteousness that he had. And then finally, the gospel promises that one day we will be glorified. That process will be completed by the glory of God, by the Spirit of God for his glory. We will be exactly like Jesus in his resurrected, glorified humanity. Not because of our efforts, but because of the promise of the gospel and the work of the Spirit of God. So we need to embrace these things. We need to embrace that we are forgiven and that's accomplished. We need to embrace that we are justified and we stand before God before God the Father in the righteousness of Christ, we need to accept that we are being sanctified and embrace that. Welcome the process. As Dakota was leading the, uh, the, the propitiation time this morning, he made the comment that we, we don't come to Christ today confessing our sins in the hope that maybe today God will forgive us. Forgive us. We come to the Lord because he has forgiven us. Just as baptism is a picture of what's already happened spiritually as we died with Christ and were raised with him, and the Lord's table is a picture spiritually of our fellowship and the perfect fellowship we have with Christ. So confession of sin on a daily basis is a picture of what we have already got, which is perfect forgiveness. And he cleanses our conscience and he teaches us humility and he glorifies himself by exalting himself in our lives as Savior every day. And we need to embrace the light of glorification that we are headed for perfect Christ-likeness. Justification says God has declared us to be righteous with his son's righteousness. Glorification will, will fulfill that so we will actually be righteous. So that's the first thing. Embrace the light. Second, make no vows. This is simple. Don't swear oaths. Don't take vows. Just don't do it. Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't take any oaths at all. Don't make any oaths at all. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Now, I looked this up. Formal oaths are almost never required in the United States. 
And if you want to spend the rest of your life avoiding formal oaths, even in a court of law, you can simply affirm to tell the truth rather than swear an oath to tell the truth. And you don't have to finish that affirmation with, so help me God. It's not required in the United States. And there's a practical reason for this, I think, that we shouldn't swear oaths, and that is it's not a guarantee that we'll tell the truth anyway. It doesn't make us tell the truth. It just binds our conscience. So second, don't swear oaths. Third, don't require oaths. Don't require any vows. Um, when are you most likely to want someone to swear they're telling the truth? It's when you think they're lying. Truth tellers will tell you the truth without an oath. Liars will lie to you with an oath. So making somebody swear an oath is simply adding to their sin. It either does nothing if they're going to tell you the truth, and if they're not going to tell you the truth, it just adds to their sin. I think it's much better to simply say to somebody, I think you're lying to me, and I want to give you the opportunity to undo that and to tell me the truth, and we'll pretend the lie never happened. We still have to deal with whatever it is you're lying about, if you're a parent or a grandparent. I, I learned a little bit at the, the rescue mission about people who lie. So guys have to check in by 5 o'clock. And sometimes they're a little bit late. And one guy would come in, and I'd say, why are you late? And he would say, well, I was at high V and I was walking back, but it's 25 degrees and the wind's in my face, and I kept stopping to warm up. Okay, I buy that. I can look out the, the window and see the, the snow. I know the wind's blowing. Okay, I buy that. The next guy says, well, I was at Hy-Vee because I promised a guy here that I would get him some Gatorade, and I was starting to walk back, but I passed a guy, and he was driving this Ford V90 with the Electroflex capacitor in it, and I was talking to him, and then he needed directions to Walmart because his mother's in town, and she needs... And I realized while I was working there... Um, truth tellers tell you the truth and the truth has a period to it. This is what happened and there's nothing else to say. But there's never an end to a lie. And liars frequently just go on and on and on and on because there's no end. There's just no end. They keep going. So don't invite people to lie to you by making them swear an oath. Just confront them with it and give them the opportunity to reverse it. Fourth, Pay your vows. There are some vows we have to make. There are some vows we need to make. I vowed myself to Linda 42 years ago. I've kept that vow. It's a little tattered. It's a little long in the tooth, but it still holds me to her. That's a vow that was important. I've been on a, a, a few juries in my time. None since I've been in Nebraska, interestingly enough, but several in California. And when you're on a criminal case sitting on a jury, you have somebody's future in your hands. It's fair to them to require you to promise formally you're going to do your job. That's not unreasonable. I've also given testimony in court a couple of times. And giving an oath there is appropriate for the record that they're making, that people are on public notice that perjury is a crime. But if you swear an oath, if you make a vow, then treat that promise as seriously as if you made it to God himself because you have. He's watching. 
and he's listening to see if you'll fulfill your vows. Even if you make it to another person, he's watching to see what you do. No one can compel you to take a voluntary oath or vow. That's what voluntary means. But once you make them, it's no longer voluntary. Takeoffs are optional. Landings are mandatory. Oaths are optional until you've made them. Fulfilling is mandatory. So we can follow the example of King David. He says in Psalm 61, I will sing praise to your name forever and pay my vows day by day. In Psalm 68, he he says, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows. And treat keeping vows and oaths and truth-telling as an act of worship. And then finally, rejoice that God keeps his oaths. God keeps his vows. God says the words, I will, more than 3,000 times. Every time he says, I will, he is taking an oath. He's taking a vow. Jesus says the words, I will, more than 200 times in the Gospels. Our words fall to the ground unfulfilled far more than we would like them to. We fail to keep them. We're not able to keep them. Even when we have every intention of keeping our word, circumstances arise. And we simply can't follow through. I can promise to be back here next Sunday morning for church, but there's countless things that could prevent that of of every kind. There's six days and 22 hours between now and then. And any one of those minutes could bring some kind of an event that simply stops everything in its tracks. But God keeps his promises. He never fails to keep his promises. Nothing keeps him from being faithful. There's nothing that takes him by surprise or changes his circumstances. So the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie, and he's not a son of man that he should repent. He doesn't need to go back and say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? That's Numbers 23. Jesus says in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And the words of Jesus not only include things like, woe to you blind guides, it includes words like, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that's why we have hope. Not because of our vows, not because of your promise to me or my promise to you. We have hope because God has promised to us. And even where we fail, he never fails. I think the prophet Jeremiah might have faced the darkest days in Israel's history ever. Right at the very end of the, the monarchy, everything is falling apart. They, they, they threw him in a pit at one point. They took the scroll he was writing and tore it up and burned it at one point. He had to rewrite it. And yet he says this, the loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the promise that we have, that God's faithfulness is great. And he never fails to keep his word. Why don't you stand, stretch your legs. Let's sing 
great is thy faithfulness.